Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point-of-sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to the Roy Green Show podcast. Now, in the wake of a horrific mass shooting at an elementary school in Texas, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau this past week signaled that the Canadian government will be moving ahead uh, on new gun control measures uh, in the coming weeks. In previous parliaments, the Liberals have made changes to Canada's gun laws, including uh, strengthening background check requirements and banning more than 1,500 models and variants of uh, assault-style firearms. Joining us now to discuss Canada's gun laws is Noah Schwartz. Uh, He is the Professor of Political Science and Firearm Policy at Concordia University. Professor Schwartz, thank you for joining us today. Hi, thank you so much for having me on. Uh, I know this is very, very early, these very early days and things can change, uh, but uh, someone like yourself who studies our firearm policy, what kind of changes could we potentially see? Yeah, so I think we've got a good idea uh, of what the government is likely going to do, uh, and that's because some of these measures were announced in the mandate letter to the minister, um, and also because uh, back in the previous parliament before the election, uh, the government had introduced some of these measures through Bill C-21. So that kind of gives us a little bit of a crystal ball that we can uh, try to see into the future and, and predict what the government's going to announce tomorrow. Um, it's likely uh, that what they're going to announce, uh, number one, uh, is sort of the finalization of their assault-style weapons uh, buyback. So announcing the program um, for actually uh, buying back the guns from the people that currently possess them. Um, they're going to likely announce uh, a municipal or provincial uh, or funding for the provinces or municipalities to ban handguns, and then a few other changes uh, to the firearms, uh, existing firearms policy, sort of minor cosmetic changes that they're going to announce as major rebrands. Uh, you said uh, minor changes in, in your third point. The first two points uh, that you made in regards to um, uh, one of them, of course, was to uh, the, the proposed the gun buyback program, which they said that they would introduce, I think it was the 2021 federal election. And then, of course, uh, the banning of handguns by municipal and provincial governments, potentially. Uh, are those significant? Uh, or is this more about updating our laws? Are these the, 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 things, the things that they want to implement now? Would you describe them as significant? I think to understand these laws, we have to sort of look at the wider context of firearms policy in Canada. Um, and the unfortunate thing, and the, both the good thing and, and the bad thing, um, I think the good thing is when you look at the literature and you look at the, the gun laws that we know to be effective, um, we know that Canada has the most effective evidence-based policies already on the books since the 1990s uh, to tackle firearms violence, and that's licensing, um, that's safe storage laws that help keep guns out of the hands of people who shouldn't have them, um, and that's also uh, bans on high-capacity magazines. We've had these laws in place for 30 years. A lot of what's happened since then um, has been that firearms policy has become very politicized in Canada. So it's a really good wedge issue. Um, and mm-hmm. the reason it's a really good wedge issue, uh, number one, is that the Canadian public uh, doesn't understand gun laws very well. Um, it's sort of a complicated area of policy, and it's hard to get across uh, in a short amount of time. Um, and also because it's very dramatic. Uh, it's very highly publicized. Um, and it captures people's attention. So it, it makes it a really good issue for both the Conservatives and the Liberals um, when they want to try to mobilize their base, get voters excited. So we mm-hmm. saw sort of the Conservative candidates uh, this week. Um, they have been really excited about the Liberals bringing back what the Conservatives had labeled a backdoor gun registry. And this was before uh, the Uvalde shooting, before the new measures. Um, mm-hmm. And then you see the Liberal government as well bringing in a lot of these measures that, you know, w- when you think of it from the perspective of creating sound public policy, there's a lot of, you know, inconsistencies in these laws. We take mm-hmm. the assault-style weapon ban, for example. There are a lot of guns that are completely functionally equivalent to the ones that were banned um, that don't quite look as menacing that, that are still legal. Um, so it's sort of, you kind of question the, the purpose behind the, the policy there. When you look at it through this lens of politics, um, it starts to make a lot more sense, and especially the timing of these announcements, right? 
Yeah, I was going to ask you about that. Um, you know, you talked about sound public policy, and whether you are a liberal supporter, or an NDP supporter, or a conservative supporter, or support other parties, um, the timing. Uh, one could argue, why not introduce something like this in the fall if that's what you believe is part of your government's desire to move forward? That's fine, but why not wait till the fall or early next year? But to do it now, just as uh, today, as you and I speak, the President of the United States is traveling to Texas. Uh, tensions are high. People are angry, as one would expect them to be. It really does speak to the politics of it, doesn't it? Just making this announcement uh, this past week here in Canada. Yeah, and this sort of there's a long history of this with firearms policy in Canada. Um, Canadians, you know, if we're being really honest with ourselves, I think we like comparing ourselves to Americans. Uh, you saw this during the pandemic a lot with Canada sort of comparing itself very favorably to, to the sort of maybe lack of measures in the United States. Um, we see this throughout history, and, and I think that. Uh, these are these very visible laws um, are, are a way for Canadians and the government to try to gain politically from distinguishing ourselves from our American neighbors. So mm-hmm. an example of this is one of the measures that they're likely going to announce uh, is what they've branded red flag laws. And red flag laws are a really big policy discussion in the United States right now. Um, well, Canada's had very similar provisions on the books, once again, for 30 years. Um, we have ways to remove uh, firearms from the hands of licensed gun owners who are a danger to themselves or others. Um, what the government's proposing to do is sort of making some minor tweaks to these laws and then rebranding them as red flag laws. Um, so we can really see kind of the, the I think, the more political motivations and, and that aspect of uh, that anti-American sentiment uh, really playing through there. Uh, how much of this, uh, and you've done a great job explaining sort of what we have on the books and where we're headed, Uh, How much of this do you think is even a deeper debate and conversation of urban versus rural? Uh, I'm not saying all gun owners are rural because they're not. Some urbanites, um, uh, uh, you know, use guns safely as well. Um, But how much of this do you think is a much deeper conversation, deeper political divide between urban and rural in this country? I I think that's a really significant part of it. Um, To give you some background, I'm doing a research project right now on gun ownership in Canada. And that involved doing an online survey of over 16,000 Canadian gun owners. And it involved long, uh, long-form interviews with about 80 gun owners. And from a lot of people that I'm hearing, especially people in rural areas, there's a feeling that, that the government doesn't understand them, that maybe they're being stereotyped or misrepresented by the government, um, and that uh, they're sort of suffering uh, so that the government can win those votes in those key ridings, like uh, you know downtown Toronto, suburban Toronto, places like that, um, big cities. Uh, so I think it, it really does exacerbate this urban-rural divide, and I think also the sense of East, uh, Western alienation sorry, that a lot of people are feeling. Um, we know that gun ownership rates are higher not only in rural areas, but also in Western Canada, in Saskatchewan, Alberta, and British Columbia. And these are areas where we've seen a lot of, of feeling of being sort of left out um, of the, the progress that's happening in Canada, um, and feeling of being left out of government decision-making. Um, and that decisions are being made, once again, for the East without consideration of the West. And I think firearms policy really fits neatly in that divide, and, and I think it exacerbates it quite a bit. How much of gun philosophy, gun culture, do you think seeps across the border? Uh, is America's gun problem becoming Canada's gun problem? What I mean by that is, you know, there is, as you and I were talking about, an rural, a rural-urban divide. But when you look at gun crime, it does impact mostly urban areas, or you see more of that crime happening in urban areas. Are we seeing some of those uh, issues that the America deals with coming across the border as well? Yeah, um, so, so I think we're definitely seeing, uh, and what I say a lot when I comment on the news and what you, what you see happening, is that we're seeing American guns causing Canadian violence. Um, there's a, you know, serious criminal pipelines coming across the border, um, especially from states that have looser gun laws. Um, where it's, it's quite easy for, for criminals, uh, criminal smuggling network to get these firearms across the border. And this is especially the case for handguns. So handguns are very tightly restricted in Canada. You need a special license to have one. Uh, they're registered. You need to contact the government if you're going to be transporting it somewhere. So very, very tightly regulated. Um, whereas just across the border, there's a lot of states where there's very little regulation, except for maybe the federal background check. Um, for uh, firearms purchase, and even that sometimes can be, be circumvented through private sales. Um, so I think there's, it's very easy for people uh, to be able to get guns across the border, and we're seeing the ramifications of that in big Canadian cities. You see usually the chiefs of police will make announcements about this. So a few months ago, the Toronto chief of police said that 80% of the guns uh, showing up in Toronto 
um, are coming from the United States. And we see similar figures uh, coming from other big city police chiefs uh, on this. If you think about, um, you know, how many Canadians uh, were regular marijuana users during marijuana mm-hmm. prohibition for years, um, and how much, you know, illegal drugs are able to cross uh, the border, um, illegal gun smuggling is as easy, if not easier, than smuggling drugs. Because guns, they smell like machine parts, so it's a lot harder for to use tools like dogs, for example, to be able to detect them. And especially handguns, because they're so small, they're so concealable, especially if you break them down. Um, it's very, very easy for these criminal smuggling networks to get them into Canada, um, where they you know, are causing serious harm. I guess with gun culture in the United States, especially with the Second Amendment, one could argue the Second Amendment poses a challenge to Canada, just based on what you've just described to me, because uh, I think on a per capita basis, the United States has more guns than any other country. And I think number two is Yemen, which is in the midst of a civil war, to give you a sense of how many guns are in the United States. The Second Amendment, uh, which enshrines the ownership of of, uh, of guns, I, I guess that is that that's a Canadian problem too, isn't it then? To a certain extent, yes, because, uh, you know, as I say, um, there's always going to be a limit to the extent that we can control the spread of illicit firearms, given that, like you said, we share the world's longest undefended border with the country mm-hmm. that has the largest supply of firearms in civilian hands, and especially the handgun culture in the United States. Um, so in Canada, long guns are much more common to own, um, and, and criminals don't like long guns as much because they're harder to conceal, right? Handguns, mm-hmm. it's very easy to carry a handgun in public and to have no one know about it. Um, so you can sort of go commit a crime and then sort of blend back in quite easily. Um, that's a lot harder to do with a long gun. Um, mm-hmm. So I think that the extreme, the prevalence of, of the handgun culture in the United States, which is fairly unique and has actually been growing in recent years with the expansion um, of laws that allow people to carry guns in public in the United States, um, is certainly having serious effects on gun crime in Canada. Now, uh, about an hour or two before you and I uh, spoke, uh, Justice Minister David uh, Lametti is saying that perhaps he'd look at imposing tougher bail conditions and longer sentences for gun violence in Canada. That's one of the options he would definitely look at. Do you think that could have, um, that would be a net positive? uh, Or is that, do you think, uh, uh, perhaps, um, you know, is more political in regards to his comments and your comments earlier to me in this interview that perhaps focusing on uh, allowing provinces and municipalities to ban handguns may be a, may be a bigger priority or more important at this particular point. Uh, so I think for, to address the first point um, with the, the sentencing, um, I think it's important to, to craft laws that give judges a certain amount of leeway to take into consideration personal circumstances. Because we certainly want judges to be able to, you know, if there's a repeat offender, if there's someone who's been caught smuggling multiple times, uh, we want to be able to, to put those people uh, away um, where they're not going to be posing that risk to society. At the same time, um, and, and I, I don't think this is what the government intends to do, but bringing in something like mandatory minimum sentences, which tie the hands of judges, um, could result in people who this was their first offense, it was a minor infraction, like there's, there's mitigating circumstances, ending up in the justice system, which we really don't want, um, because we know that oftentimes prisons can socialize people into crime, so they, they come out sort of worse than, than when they went in. Um, with regards to the municipal handgun bans, um, I really don't think that that is a policy that's going to be very uh, effective um, for the, the sole reason that, that you know, if, if the overwhelming majority of crime guns that are coming into Canada are crossing an international border, it's really, really hard to see how a municipal or provincial border would do anything to spread mm-hmm. the crime, to, the, the, um, to, spread the, to prevent, sorry, the spread of these, uh, these firearms. So is, so is that policy just window dressing in your mind? Uh, I think it is. I think we really need to be focusing on tackling the root causes of crime, um, which are, are the sort of socioeconomic causes um, that not mm-hmm. only are, are the causes of gun crime, but the causes of crime in general. Um, these are things, you know, during the pandemic, we saw a lot of after-school programs shut down. Um, we saw a lot of the responsibilities that would normally be done by the schools passed on to parents, um, which for parents in sort of lower socioeconomic demographics, parents that still had to work, uh, you know, uh, in person, um, this meant that there were a lot of young people that suddenly had nothing to do. Um, and, and as we know, when we have young people, especially young men, who aren't stimulated, who aren't uh, just sort of distracted, who don't have sports or after-school activities to do, there's a lot of risk that they might end up on the street getting involved in things uh, that they shouldn't be. Um, we need to be tackling systemic inequality in Canada. We know that a lot of crime, especially gun crime, is concentrated uh, amongst uh, communities that are suffering, amongst Indigenous communities, uh, amongst minority communities, um, places like that. So we need to be doing community intervention and work uh, to help really tackling uh, what's causing these uh, these crimes. 
Well, you know, everything you've said here makes so much sense. Um, it, it is concerning for me when you hear them talking about gun control and, and, and strengthening our laws and all that stuff when you've just told me that there are deeper causes that we have to be focusing on. Um, are there any countries or regions around the world we should be looking at uh, that have uh, paved the way or at the very least or have introduced programs that are perhaps more effective and have worked uh, for a keeping people safe and at the same time as you say tackling some of these deeper issues as well i think that's a great question but i don't think we even have to look internationally there are programs in canada community-based programs civil society programs um that have uh, been shown to be very uh, very effective and they're not getting funding and support from the government that they need we've got the one by one movement in toronto so this is uh, a young man um was started by a young man who used to be involved in crime Mm-hmm. Um, and he has dedicated his life uh, to diverting young people from gangs. Um, and they have not received very much uh, federal support. So we've got a lot of civil society groups right here in Canada that are trying to do good work in these communities that we need to be giving a lot more funding, a lot more money. We can also invest in what's called um, their, commu- their uh, violence interruption programs, community-based violence interruption programs. These are evidence-based policies that have been shown to be very successful in certain cities like New York City, uh, where they were tested, for example. Um, and these are people who will go in and intervene in, in situations where violence is likely to happen. So we see with gang violence, for example, quite often it's sort of tit for tat. Um, you're, you kill someone in my gang, so I you mm-hmm. know, kill someone in your gang. Um, and what these people will do is they will go, they will visit people in hospitals, they'll talk to gang members, and they'll work to sort of de-escalate these potentially violent situations. Um, and they've been shown, once again, to be very, very successful at removing crime. So I think we have a lot of the tools at our disposal to tackle a lot of these issues. Um, it, it's just sort of frustrating to see the government prefer to use these sort of, um, for lack of a better term, flashier, sexier kind of uh, policy options that aren't going to be as effective rather than the, the sort of rather boring things that are actually going to have a real impact. Well, as uh, all mass murderers sentenced to life without parole under a 2011 law will now be entitled to a chance at release after serving 25 years, as a unanimous Supreme Court of Canada ruling has struck down the country's toughest punishment. There are at least 12 such convicted murderers, including men who killed Mounties, small children, and senior citizens. The Supreme Court ruled that sentencing mass killers, including terrorists, to whole life sentences is cruel and unusual punishment. It is therefore unlawful under the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. Now, the ruling came in the case of Alexander Bissonnette, who killed six Muslim worshippers at a Quebec City mosque in 2017. He will now be eligible for parole after serving 25 years. So will Alex Minasian, who killed 10 people on Toronto's Yonge Street in a van rampage in 2018, and whose sentencing uh, had been delayed pending the Supreme Court decision. Joining me now to discuss the issue is Ari Goldkind, a criminal lawyer and a legal expert. Mr. Goldkind, thank you for joining us today. Great to be on with you, Mr. Johan. So uh, what are the immediate repercussions of this ruling? Well, there, it's a good way you put it. The repercussions are not only immediate, they're retroactive. They go back to 2011, and they're on a going forward basis from now until forever. It's really a very dark day for murder victims and those who love them. There's a lot of people six feet under rolling in their graves about this, and most of the people uh, in heaven above probably looking down going, what's going on here? So the immediate repercussions are that anybody who's been given a stacked parole ineligibility period, what that means in English, Jazz, is that in 2011, the Harper government changed the law so that every life taken by a mass murderer, a serial murderer, every life counted potentially should a judge exercise their discretion. Remember, this wasn't mandatory. That's Mm -hmm. a big part why I think this decision is problematic. It was not mandatory. It's not like the United States, where we sentenced somebody to 1,352 years. Here, everybody post the Harper decision, a decision that the Trudeau government never objected to. Think that through, given that Harper has become like Voldemort. The Trudeau government supported this law. Everybody who's received a 50-year, a 75-year parole ineligibility period, which means they can't apply. The sentence is always life, let's be clear. The Mm -hmm. sentence is always life. All of those sentences back to 2011 will be undone. All those people can apply for parole after 25 years. And everything going forward, and you mentioned Bissonnette, also Alec Manassian, 
All of those sentences are now automatic. There should be no sentencing hearing. There's waste of time. They're a theater. It's life, no chance of parole for 25 years. Full stop. Uh, so the repercussions of this now moving forward, I mean, for the average Canadian listening to this, um, does this apply to many, many people within the system? Or are there, is it just a small group of people who have obviously um, been found guilty of some very heinous crimes? Is this a, a large group of people we're talking you know, about? That's a great question, Jazz. And here's, what I'll, here, here's my answer, leaving my lawyer hat off for a moment, more as a mm-hmm. Canadian citizen and, and political commentator. The number of cases that this will apply retroactively back to is probably in the range of maybe 10 to 20, okay? Okay. Now, you may say that's a very small number, but there are 10 to 20 families out there now who have had their loved ones killed, and the criminal code, our moral values as Canadians, is really focused on the sanctity of life. So retroactively, while the number does not appear big, I'm not saying hundreds or thousands, There's 10 to 20 families now whose worlds have been once again turned upside down. Now, on a going forward basis, Jazz, this is also a very interesting Mm -hmm. part of the discussion, which is the Manassian sentence, the butchery and the carnage he did. There's a man out west, Justin Bork. His sentence is going to be undone. There is going to be, particularly if, like me, you think Canada is going to get much, much more violent in the months and years to come, There will be no judicial courtroom criminal law sanctions for somebody who decides to take more than one life. Remember, these are not accidents. These are not unintentional homicides. These are first-degree murderers. These are the worst of the worst. And Mm -hmm. going forward from today, you can kill one. And in your mind, not that I accept many of the theories of deterrence and Our laws prevent people from doing this. Bad and evil people are going to do bad and evil things. But the bottom line is, if you're taking one life, you know in your mind, not that I'm saying that's what they're thinking at the time, it will make no difference whether you take three, four, five, or even 15. And that, to me, is really concerning as a Canadian citizen. There's reasons for it. I'm not sure we have time to go into that. is the Supreme Court also saying, or indirectly, I guess, to the ruling is, come back with, to us with a better law? Well, no, I don't. See, that's a very good point. You saw Justice uh, Minister Lametti yesterday saying, we're going to look at this. No, this, they're, they're not going to get a law back, because one of the functions of the Supreme Court is to declare something unconstitutional. And they have been clear as a bell in their decision that it is gross and disproportionate and an affront to the dignity of the murderer. Jazz, those are their words, not mine an mm-hmm. affront to the dignity of the murderer that he won't be able to apply within his natural life. Now, think that through about the dignity of the people butchered and, and killed, but their position is that they're not going to entertain anything like this in the ballpark, no matter what Parliament does. The notwithstanding clause won't work. A couple uh, political candidates were threatening that on Twitter yesterday. Mm-hmm. This is a fait accompli. And, you know, the Supreme Court's position, if I can say, just for your audience to know They Mm -hmm. say the reason we're doing this is because it's not for us to judge the morality of every life mattering. And point number two, we don't want people to be in penitentiaries killing and stabbing themselves and guards because they have nothing to live for. That's not exactly the strongest intellectual argument I've never heard for separating out some of the most horrible people in our society from not being able to breathe the same air as you, me, and your listeners. Uh, and I have, I'm certainly not a lawyer like yourself, but is the, the charter essentially tie the hands of these uh, justices? Not in. Okay, that's a wonderful question. I wish we had more time for that. So this is a nine to zero decision. So people who disagree with me will say, "Hey, Mr. Goldkind, you, you know you don't know what you're talking about." Nine judges unanimously ruled this way. I can tell you, as certain as I'm sitting here, that not yep. only do other countries do this, countries we respect and model many of our laws under, and they have found it constitutional, I could easily have seen these judges, particularly if some of them were touched by murder, some of them lost loved ones, I could easily see a 9-0 to decision written just as long, just as ivory tower, just as legal easy, saying, look, this is the one area in criminal law, which is once a jury convicts you of multiple murders. This is not about the presumption of innocence. This is not beyond proof of a reasonable doubt, making sure we don't jail innocent. This is not the death penalty. I mm-hmm. can very easily have seen the nine judges saying, you know, this is actually constitutional. 
the dignity of an offender is not offended by this. There is a small, minuscule, to use your earlier question to me, there may mm-hmm. be a minuscule number of mosque shooters, synagogue shooters, school shooters, who by virtue of the depravity and immorality of their actions, Parliament is within its rights, and from 2011, Jazz, you know it stood, that Parliament is within its rights in a democracy to represent Canadians and to say there's an extraordinarily small subset of people, extraordinarily, who, depending on their actions, should not be able to breathe the same air as you and I. Uh, you you use the term uh, ivory tower there. Uh, is this a case, um, uh, you know, uh, and I don't expect to agree with everything the Supreme Court of Canada comes down with, yeah. but is this a case, one could argue, where the Supreme Court uh, in its ruling is out of touch in regards to the sentiment of the vast majority of Canadians? Uh, yes. As a lawyer, I'm supposed to say no, but I think I have the right to express <laughs> myself and say I absolutely think so. Now, in fairness to the Supreme Court, Jazz, the Supreme Court doesn't put its finger up to the wind or go on anti-social media. I refuse to call it social media and say, let's do what the majority of Canadians want. Oftentimes, the whole existence of the Supreme Court is to protect extraordinarily minority views. That being said, do I think the decision would be the same way if, God forbid, and I mean that, God forbid, one or two justices had their loved ones butchered or raped or murdered or child molested or buried alive Uh, in a field, I'm not so sure that they would have viewed the dignity of an offender and cruel and unusual punishment the same way. I'm also unconvinced, Jazz, that Mm -hmm. saying we want to keep people in jail, rehabilitating themselves, bettering themselves, not stabbing guards, not stabbing each other. Look, I think most Canadians would have made a trade-off that if you shoot up a mosque and kill five, ten people, or you drive down Young Street and kill 20 people, maybe we'll create some special jail way out in Moose Jaw, Saskatchewan, or in the Yukon, where we put the 10 to 15 people every five years that do it. I don't know. I just think life has to matter a little bit more. But as a lawyer, you read their decision, and it's logically uh, interesting. But I I certainly think, to your question, there is a removal from the, the views of most Canadians. But from a lawyer point of view, the job of the Supreme Court is literally to do what it thinks it's right without thinking about a ballot box. So moving forward, uh, and perhaps thinking of a ballot box, I don't know, what should Canadians or listeners of this show do? Is it a question of uh, of uh, lobbying, calling your MP uh, to rethink this, but bring something back that potentially could work within the Charter? Uh, nothing's going to work. In my view, and I know, as I said, uh, Mr. Polyev put out a statement yesterday saying he'll use the notwithstanding clause. He can't do it for reasons I can't get into. This is a fait accompli. This is a nine to zero. Supreme Court unanimous decision that talks about cruel and unusual punishment as unconstitutional. Parliament can take a crayon, they can take a Sharpie, they can give press conferences. I mean, Lametti was very clipped in his words yesterday. This is over. But I think, again, this is something that Canadians, when they look at their politicians, they look at the increase of crime in Canada, they look at the increase in gun crime, violent crime, carjackings, assault, sucker punching people on public transit. Perhaps it's time, leaving aside this court decision, that the public understands that there may just now be a disconnect between the criminal justice system and the prioritization of not only victims of crime, but victims of the most egregious crimes. But can they write their way out of the Supreme Court decision, Jazz? In my humble view, not a chance. Broadly speaking, how much of a challenge, and what do you, I mean, more so what you see, I guess, is, is the, the way to rephrase this. There is always the need to obviously balance the rights of the accused and the sentiments of the public and where the Canadian society sits. Um, in your mind, having worked in the criminal justice system for a very long time, do you worry sometimes of people's perceptions of the justice system? Because, you know, on my show, uh, I always hear this, that people generally feel that this country just does not get tough enough with criminals. And I'm not one of those guys that say, look, throw away the book. I understand there is a balance here. But do you worry about people's perception of the criminal justice system moving forward, not just on this decision, but other past decisions that Canadians sometimes feel were just too easy on criminals? Uh, I do. I do worry about that. And even though my job is to walk into a courtroom and very effectively and successfully advocate to the opposite of what I'm about to say, um, you know, you're asking me a straight question, you're going to a straight answer. Yes, I think there is a disconnect there. And as people in big cities, Vancouver, Calgary, Montreal, Toronto, Ottawa, 
see crime rates rising with a very small number of people causing an extraordinarily significant amount of violence, there is a disconnect. There is this perception uh, that the Canadian system is much more soft on crime than other jurisdictions, particularly the U.S. Now, that's not always a good thing. We don't want to match the U.S. in certain things. We don't want to lock people up and throw away the key for certain drug offenses or for certain offenses that really somebody deserves another chance. But, you know, it's a really interesting thing to tie back to a point, to your question and to my point earlier, which is this. I'm much more comfortable with a Supreme Court and the justice system that obsesses over the rights of accused to not be convicted when they're innocent. You never want to have an innocent person be convicted. That's where I want my criminal justice system to be obsessed. Uh, Now, the Supreme Court and many other courts and Parliament have been obsessed with victims' rights and making it much easier, for example, in sexual assault prosecutions for people to be convicted. So what am I saying? The Supreme Court on one hand, and many other levels of court, higher courts and provinces, have been obsessed with victims' rights, making sure victims' rights have a louder voice, oftentimes than somebody who's presumed innocent. Now you have a Supreme Court decision that barely spends a paragraph, and I'm being serious here, Jazz, Hmm. that barely spends a paragraph talking about the loved ones, the people killed, and that the entire decision is only about the dignity of the murderer. Now, I can understand their decision. Their job, as I said, is not to please Canadians, not to please Twitter. It's not to put their thumb up to the wind and see which way it's blowing. But to me, there's an ideological dichotomy where on one hand, the loved ones, the murder, don't really matter for something as simple as a parole ineligibility period to not drag families to parole board hearings. Yes, we know the parole board won't let Bernardo out. We know that. Mm -hmm. But should the families of those killed in 20 years have to make the trek out to a penitentiary? I have trouble in my head with somehow the system should be bending over backwards and calling it undignified and cruel and unusual to keep somebody in a jail. And one of the reasons is because it doesn't give them hope of rehabilitation. I understand that. It's part of sentencing principles. It's Section 718 of the Code. But as a civilized society, do we lose our civilization? If in this extraordinarily small set, let's say, God forbid, somebody blows up a jet over Saskatchewan because they're a terrorist. Mm -hmm. I'm sorry. I don't think that should attract the same parole ineligibility period as somebody who kills one person. Now, the Supreme Court says, I'm out to lunch. That's fine, by nine to zero. And, you know, look, let's make the argument. They're much smarter than me. I'm just one lowly lawyer who has my own views of morality and what the criminal justice system is for. But do I think there is a move and a perception that the courts really do not understand a lot of these issues in terms of a personal, emotional way? Yes, I think that's a good thing. But my obsession as a criminal defense lawyer, Janet, it's an obsession, is mm-hmm. making sure innocent people don't get convicted, that we don't make it easier to convict people just because Twitter thinks they're guilty, whether it's Gomeshi, whether it's Jacob Hogard. To me, that's where the criminal justice system has to fight back to the public, fight back to the Me Too movement, fight back to the presumption of guilt. But once a jury says somebody has blown up a plane or run over everybody on Young Street, or Bissonette has shot up a mosque with innocent people praying, I don't know. I don't think we lose our way by saying you've lost your ability to breathe the same air as you and I. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory... Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Britain's conservative government announced a 25% windfall tax on the profits of oil and gas firms that would be used to support $19 billion U.S. in assistance for low-income households struggling with a sharp spike 
in the cost of living. Now, Chancellor Rishi Sunak said that the levy would be placed on energy companies that were making extraordinary profits due to the spike in commodity prices uh, following the reopening of the global economy as COVID restrictions eased and Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Now, the profits uh, did not arise because of changes to risk-taking or innovations or inefficiency, uh, said Sunak, uh, Britain's top finance official. And for that reason, he says... uh, uh, he is sympathetic to the arguments to tax these profits fairly, and that is, of course, the uh, the finance minister, what is essentially the finance minister in England. Joining us now to discuss the windfall tax is Jay Zagorski, senior lecturer of markets, public policy, and law at Boston University's Questrom School of Business. Mr. Zagorski, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me on your show, Jeff. Um, so I guess the first question I, I got to ask you, did the announcement surprise you, particularly coming from a conservative government? Coming from a conservative government, yes. And let me say, just as a quick uh, headline, politically, mm-hmm. this was brilliant. Economically, <laughs> neutral. Environmentally, this is a disaster. Mm-hmm. So, well, let, sorry, go did ahead. it surprise me? So let me answer the political one. Mm-hmm. Why is it brilliant? Because the Labour, which is sort of the opposition party in England, had been championing this idea for a long time. And the Conservative, the party in power, who actually just announced this on Thursday on the 26th, said, no, 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 no. And then suddenly the finance minister, or the chancellor, uh, as you called him, uh, mm-hmm. basically reversed. And everyone was like, wow. <laughs> so politically, if you steal your opponent's ideas, uh, great idea. But it's brilliant for a second reason. Um, The money from this tax will be used to be given to poor voters, particularly not just the poor, but to pensioners. So pensioners tend to vote more than younger people. So you're giving basically extra checks. It's not checks because the money is being deposited directly into people's bank accounts, but to use that old-fashioned idea. You're giving checks basically to the people who are on the fence about whether they like your party or not. So politically outstanding. I mm-hmm. applaud. <laughs> now, uh, let, let's just uh, unpack some of the things you've said. Um, this has happened before. I'm think, trying to think back. I think in the early 1980s in the UK, they, they did tax, I do believe, the banks for excess banks. profits. Banks in 1981 had a windfall tax. Yep. Is, is this something that do you think may be uh, introduced in other countries, your country, here in Canada as well, potentially. I mean, uh, people are hurting. The impacts of inflation are significant. Um, here in Canada, food prices are up by about 10%. Gas prices, April of 2021 to April of 2022, are up 36%. Uh, and here, where I'm broadcasting from in Vancouver, uh, we pay the highest gas prices in all of Canada for a variety of reasons. Some of those problems are self-inflicted. But in regards to the underlying economic question, that all people around the world, but particularly here in North America, we're dealing with in a significant way. Uh, do you see something like this being introduced in your country or, or, or here in Canada? I don't see here in the United States uh, an idea for a windfall profit tax. Uh, it's not gaining a lot of political traction. It's much more... Windfall profit taxes were suggested for many, many decades, primarily by socialist parties. Um, and there's just not a large socialist movement here in the United States. So I don't see it gaining traction. Instead, what's gaining traction in the United States are things like rebates on the price consumers pay or for particularly gas taxes here in the United States. A number of states have canceled gas taxes. They're called gas tax holidays, where the state uh, or maybe in Canada, the province, uh, Mm -hmm. eliminates collecting some of the taxes at the pump so that people who drive cars can actually get a lower price. Mm-hmm. Uh, the province of Alberta uh, has introduced that. Uh, in the province of British Columbia, where I'm broadcasting from, uh, we are getting a check for $110, uh, period. So that would give you a, a tank of gas, probably, barely, for a Ford F-150. Um, but in the UK, in this case, uh, with uh, the windfall tax, they're, they're uh, saying the, the additional tax will help pay for at least $1,500 U.S., in financial support to, to the most vulnerable households, as you said. Uh, you also commented at the, at the beginning that this is a terrible situation when it comes to climate change. Could you elaborate on that? So for climate change, the United Kingdom has promised to be uh, net zero by 2035. Net zero basically means they're not going to be, their power sectors aren't going to be uh, emitting carbon. Um, 
And that's roughly, uh, this is 2022, this is roughly 13 or so, 14 years from now. If an oil or gas company doesn't want to pay this windfall profit tax, all they have to do is invest in either onshore or offshore in the United Kingdom oil and natural gas production. So let's assume that I'm an oil and natural gas company and I have an extra 2 or $3 billion in profits because oil prices have gone up. And I just announced that I'm just going to start a $2 billion drilling in the North Sea. Mm-hmm. Um, and $2 billion gets subtracted from, say, my $3 billion tax. So I would only have to pay the windfall profit tax on, say, a billion. So what this is is an immediate incentive for power companies, oil and gas companies in the United Kingdom to start drilling. And if you're trying to get to net zero by 2035, you want to invest in, say, things like renewables, not necessarily be investing in more oil and natural gas production. Hmm. So environmentally, it's sort of going in opposite directions for what the United Kingdom government only a few months ago announced. How much uh, of an imp- – these companies are all global uh, at the end of the day, Royal Dutch Shell, which I used in, in my example, uh-huh. and there are many others. I guess uh, does, could this uh, to a certain degree push these companies to make decisions uh, in regards to investment uh, internally or even how they structure their businesses where they may just want to leave the UK or at least reduce their exposure to the US, U- uh, UK um, because of this decision? I don't think so, and I don't think there's huge investor pressure on them. Let me talk about one of the biggest uh, oil and natural gas companies in the United Kingdom, which is BP, British Petroleum, right? Mm -hmm. Named after England, right? Britain. Uh, On Wednesday, comparing Wednesday's stock price to today or Friday afternoon stock price, the stock actually went up a few pennies. So investors didn't look at this and go, oh, this is terrible. Uh, and there's been whispers uh, last week about potentially the windfall profit tax because these things are very hard to hide. Uh, and if you look at the graph over the last month, it's pretty much straight up for British Petroleum. Your example was Shell. Shell, well, Shell's down a few cents, but very little. It's up over 12% its stock price in the past month. There's no huge dip. The huge dip actually happened and a number of power companies, but those power companies were electric power companies that were primarily invested in renewables. Those were the stocks that got hammered last week in the United Kingdom, ones that are investing in like offshore wind, because what their investors are seeing is, oh, the major gas players, the major oil and gas players, they're going to be made stronger by this. The government is giving them an incentive to invest, and that's less incentive for people to invest in, say, offshore wind, Plus, the United Kingdom said, uh, or the Chancellor said in his speech, that right now this is a windfall profit tax on oil and gas companies, and we're thinking about electricity companies, and that will be announced in the future. So, you know, the big oil shell companies, British Petroleum, they weren't hurt in any way, shape, or form, it appears, at least according to the stock market. The other um, issue, I guess, the broader issue, is just looking at these energy companies. The energy transition uh, is here. It uh, will take many decades to make that complete change that we all want to see, and hopefully it'll be quick because we need to in the context of climate change. But also in the context of climate change, what do you think is happening within these oil companies, the changes that are going to be required? Are they culturally, in your mind, able to deal with what we'd like to see eventually is not to use their product? That's a hard one to answer. Um, I won't reveal the name of the company, but I have a neighbor who only lives a few houses away, works for one of the major oil companies, uh, and mm-hmm. he's in you know, their environmental division, and he keeps telling me, oh, yes, we are changing. We used to pump you know, oil out of the ground, but we're really in, in the energy business, and we don't care whether it's renewable or not. We just want to be providing you power. That said, while he makes a very convincing case when I talk to him, Mm-hmm. Uh, when I actually look at what energy companies are doing, they still seem to be continuing to drill for oil, still looking for new fields for oil and natural gas. So I'm just not sure the rhetoric matches the actions. Mm-hmm. And because ultimately, I mean, uh, depending on what study you look at, some would say the, energy, the, the move from coal to oil took 75 years. Other study would say about 100 years. The transition from fossil fuels to 
the real renewables, uh, one hopes, will be very quick. But culturally, it would be very difficult for these companies because the near-term needs, which is what shareholders want, which is profit, is still going to be in the traditional business. Mm-hmm. I completely agree. But I want to switch back just a little bit to what the chancellor did, because what I said originally was that it, I thought it was a politically brilliant move. We talked mm-hmm. about that, and we talked about the environment, which I thought was a disaster. But I want to chat just for a little bit about economically, and I'm sort of neutral on this. And one of the things, if you listen to his speech, uh, the finance minister did, or the chancellor did, is he was talking a lot about inflation. He's very concerned. Uh, British inflation, uh, it's a little bit higher right now than Canadian inflation, but inflation all around the world is going up. The problem is that he is proposing to give 15 billion pounds to poor people, and he's only paying for 5 billion pounds of that, which means that the British deficit this year is going to be another 10 billion pounds because he's giving 15 billion away, only paying for it with this windfall profit tax with 5 billion of it. And when the deficit continues to go up, that means the British government has to pay more and more on their debt, and interest rates are rising because of higher inflation. So this means the British government is basically having an unfunded liability. Basically, it's like your listener, you know, going out, charging a whole bunch on their credit card and saying, it's okay, I can charge a lot on my credit card because I can pay a third of it down. Well, but what about the other two-thirds? Mm-hmm. I guess part of it does address the issue. Um, you talked about this being a politically uh, just a, 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 a great move politically, but it does, at the end of the day, speak to what political leaders are probably hearing, which is, "I'm having trouble now. I need help now as a citizen. I'm paying more for my bread. I'm paying more for my steak. I can't afford to buy certain foods anymore. I can't afford to buy." that uh, you know that uh, stake that I like having or I have to cut back somewhere because I'm on a fixed income and so when these residents and taxpayers depending on it doesn't matter what country you're in see, see these profits you can understand one would argue why these elected officials are doing this oh I see completely uh, and even in Canada there's relatively high provincial tax rates uh, on many oil and gas things since many of the oil and gas projects are done on provincial land Right, um, but even though they're relatively easy, and it takes care of, say, public anger, because mm-hmm. why are they earning so much money? And you know, it's very hard for me to get by. I'm not sure economically this makes a lot of sense. When you have inflation, prices are going up. It's harder and harder to live. Giving people money allows people to spend more, which drives prices up even further. So it's a bit like saying to someone who's an alcoholic, here, I'll take care of you by giving you a beer or a glass of wine. Um, Mm -hmm. It's not necessarily always the best thing. It might be a temporary fix, but in the long term, giving an alcoholic extra alcohol, while it temporarily handles the problem, in the long term, sometimes makes things worse. Mm -hmm. this is a specific, specific to the U- UK at this point. Who knows if other countries will follow. Uh, but uh, is this a reminder or a wake-up call? I don't know for energy companies, but this is where the mindset of the public's at, and then they are going to have to deal with greater attempts by elected officials to extract more dollars from them. And because of climate change, they're never going to be viewed as the good guys in any way by the vast majority of people. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That said... While I don't think I completely agree with you that I don't think that they're ever going to be viewed as good guys, and while in many ways they're sitting targets for politicians to increase on taxes, we all need power. I'm sitting here mm-hmm. in an office and I'm looking up at electric lights right now, which are powered by electricity. As soon as this interview is over, I'm going to hop in my car and go drive someplace. Uh, we don't want to give up our creature comforts. We like our air conditioning. We like our cars. We like to eat our homes in the winter. We like doing things that are very energy intensive. And because of that, whether we treat oil and natural gas companies as good people or bad people, we are still dependent on them. Uh, I guess the other issue is that we keep talking about Shell. We talked about BP. We could talk about Chevron. The bulk of the oil companies in this world are still run by states, Saudi Aramco, um, Chinese companies. 
Mm-hmm. Yes, exactly. And so it is a Western conversation we're having, yet 70% of the oil and gas companies wouldn't be impacted because they're owned by states. Mm-hmm. And uh, to add to that list, we can think about Russia, where while yeah. the oil companies are independent, it appears to me that Vladimir Putin has a very large influence on exactly what they do. Hong Kong's next leader, John Lee, is visiting Beijing, where he is expected to get the central government's official nod before he officially takes office in a month. Uh, Mr. Lee, who is 64, is a former police officer and security chief who oversaw the crackdown on Hong Kong's democracy movement, was chosen as the next chief executive by a select group of Beijing loyalists earlier this month. Now, he was the sole candidate in the race and got 99% of the vote after China changed Hong Kong's electoral system to exclude anyone deemed unpatriotic. Now, as part of a four-day trip, which began on Saturday, Mr. Li is expected to receive his official letter of appointment from the Chinese Premier and meet top Chinese leaders. Now, Mr. Li will assume office on July 1st, which coincides with the 25th anniversary of Hong Kong's transfer from the from British to Chinese rule and the halfway point of the so-called one-country, two-party system, which was supposed to safeguard Hong Kong's freedoms and a way of life for at least 50 years. Canada, of course, has a historic connection to Hong Kong. 300,000 Canadians call Hong Kong home. Hong Kong has one of the largest Canadian diaspora communities in the world, second only to the United States, where about a million Canadians live. Uh, Hong Kong is number two. Third, by the way, is the United Kingdom, which uh, has about 73,000 Canucks. Joining us now to talk about Hong Kong in the context of China is Michael Curtis Davis, Senior Research Scholar at the Weatherhead East Asia Institute at Columbia University and a Professor of Law and International Affairs at Jindal Global University. Welcome, uh, Mr. Uh, Davis. Yeah, thank you. Yes. Uh, So my first question uh, to you, sir, is how would you describe uh, the mood, the conversation in Hong Kong today? It's become very, pretty much frozen, on, and uh, the only voices that are allowed to speak are those who support Beijing. I mean, I lived in, I taught as a professor at the University of Hong Kong for 30 years, and it was mm-hmm. one of the most vibrant places in the world, where you'd get debate on all sorts of issues, very high levels of public engagement, a very admirable a kind of international city. Uh, that's all gone now. Uh, people are living in fear that if they speak up in any significant way against the government, that they'll be arrested, and many have been arrested. Uh, in regards to um, its new leader, Mr. Li, who I was uh, saying is in, in uh, mainland China uh, this weekend, uh, how are people in Hong Kong seeing the selection of Mr. Li? Well, they, you know, they basically know that he's Beijing's chosen person uh, under this new process that uh, they essentially eliminated all the opposition from what's called an election committee uh, and the chief executive under the basic law even since the handover was chosen by this election committee it used to be there were some opposition voices in the committee but still only about 20 percent so part of the promise in, in basic law was that this would be reformed and universal suffrage would be instituted. But when that was tried in 2014 and 15, uh, Beijing essentially imposed a rule on on the universal suffrage that it would have control over the candidates. Uh, It was going to do this by imposing a high threshold to be nominated under what is mostly a pro-Beijing election committee. Now, since then, in 2021, they've changed it even further to eliminate any opposition. There is no opposition in this election committee. A legislative council was elected. There's no opposition there. Uh, And when Mr. Lee wanted to run, in the old days, they would at least allow one or two candidates to contest uh, the election for chief executive before the election committee. Beijing would always signal its preferred one, and most of the pro-Beijing members of the committee would get in line and and give Beijing what it wanted. So, but there was a kind of pretense. This time around, they didn't even bother to have an opposition candidate. Uh, they have such a strict vetting process for the election committee and for uh, any candidates that no one essentially ran. Uh, the, the candidate would have to go to election committee members and get 
people to sign on to nominate him, and, and Mr. Lee had more than half the members already nominating him <laughs> because Beijing uh, had said and indicated very clearly uh, that he was their man. Uh, what happens to civil society uh, in that city now? It's activists, uh, it's news organizations, um, it's artists, it's writers. What happens to civil society now? There's been a very severe crackdown. Uh, a lot of people that dared to speak up have been arrested if they said anything the government didn't like. And, you know, this under this new national security law, uh, the definition of, of what's a, what's pro- prohibited in terms of subversion or, 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 or secession or advocating a kind of independence or collusion with foreign forces, uh, this is all very vague. And so about 170, I, I, I think that's about the count, have, people have been uh, arrested under the national security law already. Uh, and the law, in effect, creates a presumption against bail. So uh, most of those arrested are ling- languishing in jail. Uh, and one of the things they did is when uh, the opposition, before they changed the electoral system, the opposition uh, tried to have a primary election to get the best candidates to run what, in what was then expected to be a legislative council election. In the old legislative council, half the seats were directly elected. Uh, and uh, that, they were accused, this was right after the national security law was passed, they were accused of subversion, and all 42 of them uh, were arrested. Uh, and most of them, uh, 34 of them, remain in jail with denied bail over a year now. Uh, and so a very clear signal, they, they, the publisher of the, most, the leading opposition newspaper, the Apple Daily, was arrested. He's languished in jail for over a year again, denied bail, accused of, of colluding with foreign forces and subversion. Some people who did things before the national security law that the government didn't like are arre- arrested under a sedition law that already existed under the old colonial era. Uh, that sedition law had not been used since the 60s because after the handover, people thought it would violate the human rights guarantees in the basic law. But that no longer matters. Uh, people are arrested even for creating children's books that may have suggestive stories in them, uh, mm. accused of, of, of subversion and so on, or incitement to subversion. Uh, media people are arrested. Almost all civil society organizations that would express opposition have been disbanded now. Uh, they've been forced and put under pressure to disband. Even the alliance that supported the, the uh, you know, to commemorate the June 4th crackdown in Beijing, the leaders of it are all arrested. That's been disbanded. Even things like the Hong Kong Journalist Association is under threat. The Foreign Correspondence Club recently canceled its annual awards for Human Rights Press Award. I won one of them myself a few years ago. Uh, and they, they, they selected all the people and then canceled uh, awarding it at the last minute, fearful that they would be attacked and put under pressure. Uh, unions have disbanded, uh, teachers' unions. Uh, uh, the universities are under stress because uh, they all have to teach national security. Used to be professors had a leading role in Hong Kong in expressing uh, views about public policy and so on. Now it's almost all gone silent. I'm interviewed almost every day on this because I'm not in Hong Kong and can say freely what I think about things. So it's been a very severe crackdown. As I was saying in the introduction, we have 300,000 Canadians who live um, in Hong Kong, a significant uh, uh, population of Canadians. And so, you know, when we look at uh, Hong Kong in the context of Canada, a lot of our citizens are are, are there. Uh, when I made this introduction uh, for this segment, we talked about the one country, two party system and the fact that it was supposed to be there for 50 years. Uh, July 1st will mark t- the 25th anniversary. Listening to your comments prior to the break, in regards to significant changes, in regards to stifling of of uh, the ability to have an opinion, expressing your opinion, and just the the the, the crackdown from the, the the Communist Party, and I don't want to sound fatalistic here, but is this was this not going to happen? Was it not inevitable, even with a fifty year framework, that eventually the mainland would want to come in and they would not allow this one country, two system framework to last? You know, this is, is, a, is a difficult question to answer because 
if you looked at the sign of British Joint Declaration that provided for this and the basic law, it had an extraordinary guarantees. It, it, it maintained the common law system and so on. So there was a kind of vision that Hong Kong, maybe like other, you know, free market economies in the region would just exist sort of in the way it traditionally existed. Uh, and because the British rule was to be eliminated, that there would be local self-rule and that these things would protect Hong Kong from uh, these guarantees would protect Hong Kong from mainland influence in certain ways, even provided in there that mainland departments were not to interfere in Hong Kong and mainland laws were not to apply. So so there was a very clear vision uh, under Deng Xiaoping's leadership on this. Uh, and yet, uh, it seems, as you suggest, there's a kind of DNA of control in the Communist Party that they simply couldn't carry it out, that they, they were always out to, uh, you know, control things and would not be able to relax. Um, in regards to the 300,000 Canadians that I had mentioned, how significant, uh, from what you're hearing from fam- family, friends, colleagues, um, in your own research, how significant is the brain drain? Uh, from Hong Kong, because everything that you've talked about speaks to a quality of life, speaks to an openness, seems, speaks to the ability for a city to sell itself to expats and other people uh, wanting to work in this vibrant city. Uh, how real is the brain drain now because of what's happened? It is real. I don't have this, the numbers here right now in my head, but but what what's happening is uh, there's two levels of this. One is the COVID uh, that the Hong Kong government now so directly under the control of Beijing uh, carried out this so-called zero COVID policy uh, for a long time. And, and that made things very difficult. So you can't really go, come and go from Hong Kong. So that, that thing, that's separate, but in some ways related because it, it represents a kind of Beijing model, which we're now seeing still in Shanghai and other cities on the mainland, which is having a huge economic impact. And so people, uh, foreigners that are there really want to leave for that alone. But on top of all of that, with these controls on education and so on and the silencing of opposition voices, a lot of people just don't want their children to be raised in this environment where they, where they don't have access to a good liberal education or where the liberal education has been degraded. So there's a lot of impact there. There's also a kind of corruption that's creeped across the border because supporting the mainland policies becomes imperative if you want to do business with mainland companies and so on. So there's a kind of leverage if you stay in Hong Kong that you have to go along to get along. Uh, and then a lot of countries such as Canada, the United States, and so on are, are have laws that seek to uh, restrain companies from engaging in certain kinds of behavior abroad. Uh, and there's a lot of promotion of these kinds of policies, sometimes in the form of sanctions and other times just laws themselves on on uh, human rights violations abroad. So I think com- companies there are put in a bit of a bind, and it would be a rational judgment for many of them to get, go offshore. Even the New York Times moved most of its operation to Korea. So this is, is kind of what uh, expats are facing. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, we've talked quite a bit about the crackdown uh, that we've been seeing the last few years. Um, where do we go now? Where does Chinese, the Chinese government, the mainland Chinese government go? And I was, I was reading recently that uh, you know, the, the hard border that you had between Hong Kong and, and, and coastal cities like Guangdong uh, may be gone. There's, a, there's a, an, certainly an encouragement uh, to integrate Hong Kong deeper into the sort of the greater Bay Area in and around um, where it is located, which would include Macau, many other cities, nine cities, I think, in the Guangdong province. Um, that integration, to my understanding, is is ongoing. Where does China go next in regards to integrating Hong Kong further into its sphere beyond the crackdowns that you've talked about? Well, I think it also reaches, you know, there was a term banded about recently uh, called loyal rubbish, uh, to refer to Hong Kong tycoons, which Beijing always sort of cultivated a, a friendship with, and the tycoons were very pro-Beijing and pro-establishment, as we call it, in Hong Kong. Uh, there's a sense now that more and more mainlanders and mainland companies 
are going to be the tycoons, if you will, of Hong Kong. So this has an impact. Uh, some of the local businesses may find it a bit less, that they have less influence and are less comfortable. So along with this Greater Bay Area agenda, there's, I think that this doesn't just reach out beyond Hong Kong, it reaches into Hong Kong as to who is powerful and influential in the city. And in effect, if foreigners leave, Beijing will probably replace them with mainlanders. Uh, and so, so that has an impact. But I think there's also a kind of global impact to all of this in that this model is hollowing out of liberal institutions. Perhaps that is Beijing's model in countries where it has influence. So, so I, these are the questions I think uh, uh, a lot of people, expats and investors, and Hong Kong people themselves, when they decide whether to stay, these are things that are on their minds. Mm-hmm. In regards to that, um, uh, in regards to liberal institutions, uh, that uh, liberal open life that you described when you lived there, uh, do you see that ever coming back now? And I mean, I, and I, like I said, once again, I don't want to sound fatalistic because I think that's the wrong way to go. Do you do you do you hold optimism for the city and its citizens? Well, I, Hong Kong people are so admirable. You know, I mean, I admire them so much because. You know, as an American and, and, and people I know in, in North America, whether they vote or not and so on is always questionable, uh, whether they engage in public affairs, where the population of Hong Kong, has, as I lived there, was always very much engaged. So you like to think that if they're given a chance that they could rebuild and, and restore these kinds of institutions. But then they're dealing with such a huge major power uh, you know, sort of the elephant in the room, if you will, in Hong Kong is Beijing. Mm-hmm. And so it seems unlikely that things will improve unless Beijing itself improves its its policies. And that may have something to do with leadership in the country and, and the direction the country as a whole takes. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.